Before I actually dive into the message portion, a couple weeks ago, uh, Jason Dunn, who's our executive pastor, he shared a message here about uh, whole science and faith and how those two can come together, which was fantastic. And a couple months ago, uh, Jason, because uh, he's new to our staff, he was just sharing some of his life story with us. And he shared a phenomenal story that when we heard it uh, and we knew this day was coming up on the issue of dealing with trouble in our life, um, we felt like this would be a perfect way to enter in. So while the offering's being taken, we're going to go ahead and begin by watching Jason's story. Here you go. My name's Jason Dunn. This is my story. It's called Two Broken Bikes. It all started innocently enough. My wife and I had two wonderful sons and were asking the dreaded husband-wife question of, how about three? We pondered on it for a year or so. The boys were 18 months apart and quite a handful. Our blessings were many and we were thankful for the healthy sons we had but it couldn't be denied that we both had always hoped for a daughter. After some additional thought and prayer, we decided to try for a third, and of course, secretly hoped it would be the daughter we dreamed of. I'm not sure why, but an act somewhere between heartfelt hope and lunacy, I went out and bought my wife a tiny, precious girl's dress for her birthday. Admittedly, this wasn't the brightest move I've ever made. I think my motivations were to express a healthy hope that we might be able to have a daughter someday, and express some solidarity with my wife in that hope. When I gave my wife the dress, she burst out in tears. It wasn't until that moment that I understood that the depths of my wife's hope for a daughter. For both of us, I think a reasonable and healthy hope had advanced to something closer to an expectation. This didn't make my gift of the dress any brighter. In fact, I worried I had made things considerably worse. What can I say? I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but my intentions were good. You can imagine our excitement when my wife became pregnant for a third time. Our two previous pregnancies and deliveries had gone remarkably smooth and the thought of speed bumps or hardships in this third pregnancy was the furthest thing from my mind. So I responded with minimal concern when my wife told me that she had started spotting at about the seven-week mark of our pregnancy. It was just a little bit of blood, and I figured it was something normal and encouraged her to call her OB to see what this was. He said it could be nothing, but might be the onset of a miscarriage, especially if the spotting picked up. I was still fairly calm, but my wife was incredibly concerned, as you can imagine. We prayed diligently that the baby would be okay and that we were going, and if we were going to lose the baby, that God would help us through that loss. A few days later, it was clear that we were having a miscarriage. Although very disappointed, I remember responding fairly well, even though it was extremely hard on my wife. I reminded myself and my wife about the two healthy sons we had and that some couples couldn't have any children at all. I focused on the fact that miscarriages are not all that rare and happen to many couples. I tried to focus on the many blessings we had and all that there was to be grateful for, as God would want us to. Nevertheless, I think this first miscarriage was more jarring for both of us than we fully acknowledged. My wife seemed anxious to try and get pregnant again, and it just wasn't happening. Six months or more went by, and nothing. We ended up moving to Utah for my work, still nothing. Six months more went by, and nothing. We were honestly beginning to wonder if God was somehow telling us that it just wasn't in the cards for us to have that daughter and if we should just focus on letting go of this hope. And then it happened. My wife was pregnant again. As excited as we were about the pregnancy, we were more than on edge during the six to eight week period where most miscarriages occur. We had done the research and knew that if we got beyond about the 10 week mark or so, statistically things are usually okay. Well, we got to the 10 week mark and things were still okay and we were thankful. Then inexplicably, a few weeks later, the spotting started again like in the first miscarriage. To be honest, we were very panicked when it started again this late in the pregnancy, at the end of the first trimester. We earnestly and desperately prayed around the clock that the baby would be okay, but the bleeding got worse, much worse. 
In the middle of the night, my wife woke up and said it was feeling like she was going into labor. Things were happening fast, and I didn't know what to do. The bleeding was getting worse. Somewhere between wondering if we should go to the hospital or call for help, my wife delivered our tiny bed baby. Our previous miscarriage was traumatic, but this was different. We could see that it was a real tiny baby right there in front of us that didn't make it. I dared not check to see if it was a boy or a girl. This type of situation is not the type of thing you plan for, and I was at a loss for how to deal with any of it, not the least of which was what to do with the baby itself. Somewhere between reason and delirium, I decided I need to bury the tiny baby, no bigger than my pinky. Once I knew my wife was okay, I decided to drive up on South Mountain and find a place to bury the baby. This wasn't a great plan, as it was about 3 a.m. in the middle of winter and one of the most prolific winter storms I'd ever seen. As I sat out from the truck with my shovel, I was tromping through at least two feet of fresh powder in the middle of a blinding snowstorm. But I dutifully hiked to the edge of a cliff overlooking the valley and buried my baby. By the time I was finished, the storm had quieted down a lot, and it was just gently snowing. I looked out over the valley in the midst of all that snow, and it was truly one of the most beautiful sights I had ever seen. But this was a stark contrast to the gut-wrenching pain and confusion that was boiling up inside of me. One miscarriage? Anyone could understand this. Two miscarriages? This seemed like a bit much. But coupled with the trauma of seeing our dead baby in front of us just absolutely broke me. In the middle of the snow, I cried out to God, asking for an answer for why this was happening. I screamed up to the heavens asking God for some comfort, an answer, a reckoning, anything. If there was one time in my life where I wanted a sign, a voice, a vision, an angel, or a clear answer, it was clearly this moment in time. But all I heard was silence. The snow just continued to fall in silence. For a season and time, these events felt like a dagger to my soul. I simply hardened up inside. For months on end, I felt anger and depression most of the time. Faith in God or anything at all seemed like a struggle. Any spiritual instincts I had seemed thwarted, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit seemed inaccessible. Susie and I both searched for answers, but there aren't necessarily answers for these sorts of questions. We wondered if God was mad at us. We wondered if He had it out for us. Maybe we needed to be shown a lesson. Maybe it was just our time to suffer for some reason. Maybe He didn't really care at all. The only thing that was clear to us was that a third child, and a daughter in particular, probably was not going to be possible. We couldn't even bear the thought of trying again and possibly going through this for a third time. After nearly half a year of death spiraling, I came to the end of my rope during a church service. To be honest, I was just forcing myself to go and couldn't have been less interested in sitting there. During the service, I was just zoning out and decided to write a few questions on my bulletin. Life had just been reduced to these simple, basic questions. Has anything supernatural ever happened in my life, or am I just kidding myself? How can I have faith when I'm struggling to just believe right now? Is faith a gift or a choice? I'm not sure what I expected from this exercise or these questions. I just tossed the bullet in my drawer at home and didn't think much more of it. Maybe I thought it was just more fuel to burn on the hopeless fire I was experiencing. Agonized and depressed, that week I decided to go on a pilgrimage to Moab. This is where all people go for a spiritual renewal, right? Well, it made sense to me. Mountain biking is my favorite hobby. Uh, the one thing I like to do outside. I thought I would go down to Moab for four days, enjoy some solitude and mountain biking, and earnestly seek God out. I was clinging to the promise that if we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. I had high hopes that something might make sense again, that I could find some answers to the questions I had. Oh God, be merciful to me, 
For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Well, here's one thing we know. In this room, with this many people in here, some of you walked in today, you hear Jason's story, you hear the topic of the day, you hear that psalm, and you're going, I can't believe I'm here. Because this is where you're living right now. You're in trouble. You're feeling hardship, you've got suffering, you're in a dark place in your life. Others of you, you walked in, life's good, and everything's fine, but I guarantee you there's somebody in your life, there's someone you love, family member, friend, coworker, someone in this room who you know is really struggling and they've got trouble in their life. I wanna really encourage you, grab your program and get your pen and be ready to write down some of these things. I feel like there's just some clear points. As I've sat with this message today, there are so many times in my life when it's got super dark and I need this help. And I believe that God has some good help for us today as we go into this. Now, in Jason's story, anytime, those of us who are married who'd have kids, when you get the words, we're pregnant, as soon as Susie came and said to me, we're pregnant, immediately what happens is you get vision for the future. There's dreams. You've, we're going to have a baby. That's the first thing you think of. We're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And then you start dreaming about that future of that child. And the truth is, you guys, um, we do this with lots of things in life. For me, I had dreams and hopes and visions of playing tackle football right? I mean, because I'm old, right? Back in my day, you didn't get to play tackle until you were in eighth grade, right? You had to do that sissy flag thing. And so I couldn't wait. And I did. I couldn't wait to get to eighth grade. And I had dreams and visions of finally being able to play football. You guys think about the first time you went on a date with somebody and it went good. All right. And then you decided you were actually going to really date this person. This was going to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What happens? Immediately you have visions of the future. You start to dream. You have hopes. It's every wedding. Every wedding. Stand. The two couples sit there. and they, No, they don't sit there. They stand there. 
before me with hope and dream and vision of the future. Do you guys remember when you got the call and it said, congratulations, you got the job? Remember that feeling? You wanted this job so bad and they finally called and said, you're the one, you got it. And immediately, future, you have dreams of fulfillment that you're going to find in this work and financially you're finally going to be taken care of. You start whole 30, right? <laughs> and you have dreams and visions that your body's actually going to look the way that you want it to look. Um, you decide to receive Jesus Christ and begin a relationship with a living God. And you immediately start to dream, oh my goodness, my life finally is gonna have a God who loves me in it with me and present. This happens to us all the time. And then what happens? Life. And then life happens. I couldn't believe it, man. My first game as an eighth grader finally playing the game that I love. And I grab a guy and I tackle him and I pull him on top of me. And then everybody jumps on top of me. I'm under this pile. And all of a sudden I scream, get off. <laughs> and it was hilarious because the other guy's face mask was right on top of mine. And he's looking at me and his eyes got this big because <laughs> I'm blood curdling scream. Everybody flies off the pile. And I look over and my arm was here and then here and then here. And then my hand was over here. Literally an S. You know what the first words were out of my mouth? Why me? This is my dream. This is what I wanted. You guys, life happens. The relationship that you thought was going to last gets funky. Or you get funky. And next thing you know, it's not this, isn't it? It doesn't work. You break up and your heart is crushed. The wedding day that we all had, eventually the honeymoon is over and every married couple now has to face what it is to actually love someone until death do you part. And it's why we said you're going to have to have a vow to do that. The job's not a fit at all. The boss is a jerk. <laughs> or you love the job and then they let you go. And now you don't know how you're going to make it financially. You feel a pain that you've never felt before. You finally get the courage to go see the doctor. And you're sitting in the waiting room and he walks in. And this is not good news. You receive Christ and it's so exciting. And then all of a sudden, you begin not to feel God. It's like, where, how come I don't feel him anymore? His voice gets fuzzy, distant. Sometimes it feels like he's not even there. And then you follow him and your life gets worse. <laughs> and you wonder, wait a second, what happened to my dream and the vision if I brought God in here? Here's what I know. Not much hinders our faith than trouble, than suffering and hardship. And so we need a faith that requires faith. Most of us in here, if you're, even if you're pursuing the possibility of a God, you believe that there is one, or you do, or you believe in Jesus, but then life hits, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I, I know for me sometimes my walk with God has been like a certain situation, circumstance rises, and I go to put my faith in him, and it, it won't even move. 
And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm trying to use a muscle I never used before. I didn't know that I didn't trust him, but the truth is I don't trust you, God. Because I'm not full of joy and peace right now. We need a faith that requires faith. Now, so we're going to look at the story of David. Why? Because this guy experienced trouble. Here's where we're going to go at in the story. So he, again, he's anointed to be king, and he's 15 years old, you guys, 15 years old, and he gets anointed to be the king of Israel. You want to talk about hopes and dreams and visions? (laughs) Can you imagine what was going through this kid? I mean, first of all, he's probably scared to death, right? (laughs) Thinking, there's no way I can do this, but God anointed me. He chose me to be the king. Well, then this whole David and Goliath thing happens, which is the passage we looked at last week. But right after he kills Goliath, the men come back from the army and they're walking in with their victory. And the women in the city and the men, they start singing and they sing, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. So immediately what happens is the king, Saul, it's the scriptures point blank. From that point on, he's jealous of David. He's jealous of him, so he watches him closely. And God's favor continues to be on David. And so he becomes afraid of him. The Bible says Saul becomes afraid, and then you know what happens? His anger mounts up out of his jealousy and his rage and his fear. And he becomes a madman. It says an evil spirit takes him over. And so here's David serving Saul faithfully in the palace. He's going, he's anointed to be the king. And all of a sudden, the king starts flipping out and tries to take him down. Literally throws a spear right at him, tries to nail him right to the wall. It gets so bad that David eventually has to flee for his life. Now listen to this. Think about this. You've been told the dream has happened. You're going to be the king of Israel. And then for eight years, for eight years, Saul chases David trying to kill him. The scriptures say that Saul grabbed all of his forces. Okay, that's like the president of the United States getting the Green Berets and the Rangers and all of his forces for just to take down David's life. What? Now, here's where we got to go. Okay, get past your, okay, I know the story if you're a Christian. Get past that. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you believe about God if you were David in that moment? I mean, we lose our job and we think God has forgotten us. <laughs> a relationship doesn't work and, it, we, and, and we, we run away from God. He's not faithful to us. Here's David for eight years having to run for his life. And what he developed during this time was a faith that required faith. Psalm 57, which Tyrande read to us, is the psalm that David wrote while he was hiding in a cave Okay, so it wasn't just a dark season of his life. It's literally dark. He's hiding in the cave and he writes this psalm. Okay, I'm gonna walk you through this thing and here's here's what I want you to grab your pen and your paper and I'm gonna give you five things to expect when you're in trouble. Okay, what can you expect when you're in trouble? And this is what we learned from David. Here's the first thing. Expect trouble, (laughs) Just expect trouble. Listen, what did Jesus say? He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
You guys, I, I gotta tell you, I'm just gonna be totally honest with you. This is maybe the most important thing I can tell you. This has been one of the biggest struggles in my life. Because I have this idea that if I follow God, right, and I do everything that he wants me to do, then life is, then he's gonna be with me, man, and we're gonna see awesome things. I really believe that. So what happens when you're trying to follow God and things aren't so awesome? See, I have an expectation that's false because Jesus Christ can't make it more clear. Nelson, in this world, trouble. Why, what in the world? What, what are you thinking here? Can I just tell you, man, don't think that once you get God into your life that all the trouble goes away. That is not true. And I am so grateful. Oswald Chambers, it's a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Man, if you don't own that thing, <laughs> grab it. He's phenomenal. Listen to what he says. He goes, we tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we are obedient to him, that he will lead us to great success. Anybody else? Bring it on. We should never have the thought that our dreams of success are God's purpose for us. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. What is my vision of God's purpose for me? Think about this. What is your vision of God's purpose for you? Whatever it may be, his purpose is for me to depend on him and his power right now. If I can stay calm, faithful, and unconfused while in the middle of the turmoil of life, the goal of the purpose of God is being accomplished in me. So you guys, we have to change our expectation. If you think that in this world, with God, all the trouble's gone, you have a wrong, that's not true. You gotta establish that fact. In this world, you will have trouble. But what did Jesus say? Take heart. I've overcome the world. In me, you may have peace. See, here's the hope. You're going to have trouble, but you can have peace in it. How? Here's number two. You got to expect God to be in the trouble with you. Okay, so expect the trouble and then expect God to actually be in it. This is where Jesus is saying, I have overcome the world. I'm in you. So now here's some peace. Here's what David said in Psalm 57.1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Now, so you just got to stop and understand. By definition, refuge means what? There's trouble. There's a storm going on. There's hardship. There's suffering. Something negative is happening or you don't need a refuge, right? Is it still beautiful outside? You know, no, no one's seeking a refuge unless it's shade, maybe. But we don't need refuge on a beautiful day. You don't need refuge when everything is going on. No, you only need refuge in trouble. So what David is saying is, I'm in trouble, but my soul seeks you as my refuge. Here's what we've got to believe when you're in trouble. Trouble does not mean that God has left you. We buy that lie all too often. That's what Jason was struggling with, right? When he was honest with his thoughts, maybe we've displeased God. Maybe he doesn't care about us. 
Trouble does not mean that God has left you. God is the refuge in the trouble. This is how David had faith that required faith. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you believe that? See, that's one of those things, again, I know that, but why when I'm struggling and I feel so much angst and despair and anxiety, it just doesn't feel like he's not with, he, it doesn't feel like he's with me. You must fight to believe and have the expectation there's going to be trouble and I expect God to be in it with me. Okay? Number two, or number three, expect God to be greater than the trouble. <laughs> expect God to be greater than the trouble. Psalms 57, 2, David says, I cry out to God, what? I cry out to God. Okay, let's say this together. I cry out to God. Mo okay, that was really lame. I cry out to God. Most high. Most high. <laughs> See, now, now this is really important because later he says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Okay, now David knew lions, right? He had fought these things. Lions are powerful. He's in the midst of fiery beasts. You may be in a trouble right now that seems so insurmountable. And so when you go, God is with me. David's saying, okay, God's with me. He's in the trouble, but I'm crying out to God most high. He is far above and beyond any trouble, any boss, any sickness, any relational conflict. He's far above it. This is what David knew. And so somehow he had a faith that was beyond faith. And so he says this, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. See, David knew, man, these guys, this is the king and all his forces. But God is bigger. And he'll come from heaven and actually save me. So later in verse 5, what does he say? Be exalted, O God. Because listen, man, the lions are out there. The ravenous beasts, it's tough. But be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here's the question that you have to ask. Expect trouble, expect God in the trouble. Now here's your question. Do you let your circumstances define God? Or does God define your circumstances? That you have to wrestle with. See, because most of the time, when bad things happen to us, we immediately start to define God. He doesn't love me, he's not faithful isn't powerful, doesn't care. Instead, what David was saying, no, I know this God and he is these things. So even though my circumstance looks horrible, God is greater than the trouble. And I'm telling you, man, you gotta wrestle that one down. And so you have to tell yourselves what's true in your trouble. So let me just tell you, here's from the New Testament. God is with me, yes. He's with you. If you're a follower of Christ, okay, because this is the whole thing, having God, being reconciled to God, not walking apart from God, but being reconciled to God. Look at this. It's Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, no powers, no kings, no armed forces, all coming after me. 
No demonic forces in the spiritual realm. Nothing in the present age. Nothing, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, you guys listen to this, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. Is he with me? Yes. 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 But is he greater? Listen to this. Ephesians 1. Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head of over everything for the church. See, Jesus, this is what we struggle with. It's like, oh yeah, he's risen from the dead, man. He's savior, he's God. Yeah, and now you're in trouble. That's okay. He's with you and he's far above every power, every authority, every dominion, anything on heaven, in heaven or on earth. This is what David, I'm telling you, this is the faith that requires faith. Do you believe that when you're in trouble? Expect trouble. I expect God to be with me in the trouble and I expect him to be greater than the trouble. Here's number four. Expect God to use the trouble for your good. See, God is in the trouble you are in. He is in it. And so Psalm 57, two, David says, I cry out to God most high, look at this, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And, and, I, and this is where you just have to stop and go, hold on, David, don't you understand? The king and all his forces are tracking you down. And he is, he's freaking out. He's crying out to God, but he's crying out to God most high to the God who will fulfill his purpose for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that no matter what's going on in your life, that God is going to fulfill his purpose for you? See, that's why in the New Testament, we grab onto Romans 8, 28, working together. God works together in all things. That means the bad and the good. He works together in all things for the good of those who love him and are called again according to his purpose. See, I'm going to tell you right now, God probably is not going to step in and make sure that your purpose for your life is going to work. Now, there, he's not. But his purpose for you, he goes, I'll work in everything to the good because you're called according to my purpose. I love eventually David was able to say, as surely as the Lord lives, he has delivered me out of every trouble. You know, and because he believed that, you guys, the next verse he says, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. See, David had developed a faith in God far beyond the norm. I actually, this is what I believe. I think God was totally in this whole thing with him because he was, devel he was developing David's character. He was testing his faith and strengthening it so that when he became the king, he'd be a faithful king. He had a purpose for his life. He has a purpose for every one of your lives. And when the troubles come, you can know this, God will be faithful to work for the good, for his purpose for your life. So, expect trouble. Expect God to be in the trouble. 
Expect him to be greater than the trouble and expect him to work good out of it. And here's the last one. This is a good one. Expect the trouble to end. (laughs) I love this verse. Verse one, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass. (laughs) They're gonna pass. Eventually they're gonna go by. So I'm coming in you until they're done. I remember you guys, uh, One of the darkest seasons ever in my life. I'm going to be totally honest with you. To this day, I still don't understand. Like lots of things you can look back and go, okay, I see what God was doing. I have a season in my life that was so dark. I just, when I get to be with him one day, I'm going to go, okay, what was that all about? And it happened. I was driving to Colorado from Michigan. How many of you have ever driven from the east to Colorado? You guys ever done that? Like, right, you see the mountains and like three weeks later, you finally get to them. It's like this unbelievable plane. It takes forever. And I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, over the mountains comes this black line. I mean, there is a storm coming, and there is a delineate line right there where it's happening. And right when I'm running out of gas, the storm is hitting me. So I get out of my car, and I go to fill up my tank. And I am not lying, man. It took every bit of my strength to be able to stand in one spot. The wind was blowing so hard. It was ridiculous. I finally fill up my tank. I get in my car, and I'm going right into the storm. And I'm telling you, it was unbelievable. I think the worst storm I personally have ever been in. And then all of a sudden, this thought hit me. Above the storm, the sun's shining. Right? (laughs) The sun's just shining up there. And this storm is going to come, and it's going to go. And the sun is always shining. And I want to tell you what, man. That storm hit me, and it was so intense. And I believe with all my being that God gave me that picture to hold on to, to say, hey, Nelson, just hang on here. It's coming. And it's going to be dark, and it's going to be nasty, and it's going to shake you to the very core of your faith. But it will go. And the sun is always shining. I'm with you in the trouble. I'm greater than the trouble. I'm going to use this trouble for your good, and it'll end. Those are the things we have to believe. Now, I'm going to give you some practical stuff to do this. But before I do, I just want you to, now we're going to let Jason kind of finish his story of being in the start time. So let's watch this. Although my plan was decent, I must confess that while driving down to Moab, I was not meditating on the answers to my questions. I was meditating on the anticipation of the finest mountain biking on the planet. With slick rock and single track on the brain, I pulled off on the Klondike Bluffs Road, one of the first places you can bike about 20 minutes from Moab. Hopping out of my rig, I was giddy with anticipation. I rapidly went through my pre-ride ritual of checking pressures and pumping up this and that, when unexpectedly my rear shock just slowly and surely released every ounce of air it had. Thinking maybe I had attached the pump wrong, I unscrewed it and reattached, but the pump and shock were absolutely dysfunctional. The pump wouldn't pump and the shock wouldn't hold air and the bike could not be ridden in this state. Flabbergasted and dumbfounded, I threw the pump to the ground and sat in the sand to pout. This was just perfect and basically par for the course on how the last year had went. But as I sat in the sand and contemplated my situation, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart clearer than anything that had happened over the last year. 
The spirit whispered, Don't you remember that you came down here to draw close to me? I realized that I'd really put the mountain biking first and vowed to try and balance things out a little bit better for the rest of the time. With that in mind, I decided to go back into town, drop off my bike for repair, and check into my room. In order to cooperate with the spirit of the whole thing, I decided to read the Bible and pray in my room and seek some inspiration. After doing that, I noticed the yellow pages on my desk. For some reason, God was prompting me to open up those pages and find a church to go to on Sunday. This may seem like a small manner, but it really isn't my style to crash a church I don't know in a foreign town. I've just never been overly comfortable with that sort of thing, especially alone. Anyway, I figured I should just get over it and do what I was being prompted to do, so I thumbed through the yellow pages and picked the Community Church of Moab. It was the biggest ad, and I thought it seemed large and inviting. How scary could it be? I would just go and hide in the back. Feeling pretty good about things, I went to bed and got up Saturday morning. I went to the bike shop and picked up my bike, which was fixed. The mechanic said nothing was wrong with the shock, and he just filled it up, and it was fine. Hmm. Anyway, I wasn't going to argue with him, as he didn't charge me anything for just pumping up my shock for me, and I headed up to the Mossabok Trailhead for one of my favorite rides in Moab. I got out to a Mossabok, and this time there was no tragedies in my pre-ride ritual, and I headed up the trail for some world-class biking. Everything was going great, in fact so great that my mind was already drifting towards Sunday. My thoughts were that I wanted to ride Porcupine Rim on Sunday, but that I would have to skip church to do so, as this ride required a shuttle that left at 8 a.m. on Sunday. No biggie, I could just bag church, as I was a little nervous about going there anyways for the aforementioned reasons. About 10 pedal strokes after this thought, my rear hub disintegrated. When this happens, the bike turns into a free wheel in both directions, and the bike can't be pedaled at all. There's no power to the drivetrain. I absolutely could not believe my bike had died twice in two days. Disgusted, I sat down near the top of Mossabok overlooking the Colorado River. Once again, the Holy Spirit was there to instruct me with one line, crystal clear. You need to go to church tomorrow, not go riding. For all my attempts to do my own thing, it was becoming clear that God was graciously choosing to meet me during this time away, even if it meant nuking my bike twice. On the walk down, meditating about everything, I stopped in my tracks. I realized that my life had been unraveled by two miscarriages, but that God had made it clear to me that he was still here via my bike dying twice. As you can imagine, I was brimming with anticipation with what God was going to do at the Community Church of Moab Sunday morning. The two episodes with the bike were already bordering on the miraculous for me. I don't know if God entered into time and space to kill my bike twice, but he had spoken to my heart clearly twice, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was meant to be in this church the morning of August 5, 2007. As I got out of my truck, I tried to suppress the scary cat, I'm uncomfortable and I'm an outsider feelings, I was having as I walked up to the building. Those feelings didn't get any happier when I heard an organ playing inside the church. In terms of musical style, I'm sort of a modern guitar-based worship style of guy, and I would have bet money when I saw the ad in the yellow pages that there wouldn't be an organ inside. For a moment, I thought I must be at the wrong church, as I hadn't seen the name of the church yet. But as I walked up, I saw the name right there. This was the Community Church of Moab. Fear swelled in my heart for a moment, and I seriously thought about running back to the truck. But I calmed myself down and tried to focus on everything that had happened and steeled myself to put one foot in front of the other and walk into this church. I walked into the church, hoping for hundreds of people and the ability to slyly slip into a pew in the back, anonymous and unnoticed. When I got inside, it was clear that simply was not going to happen. This was a small town church and everybody knew each other, and it was clear I wasn't going to blend in. 
This became even clearer early in the service when Pastor Keith announced this was the time in the service where any visitors can introduce themselves if they would like to. And it felt like I had every single eye in the room wheel around to focus on me. By this time, I was seriously wondering if the appearance of a plan for this pilgrimage was anything but a mirage. I was having a hard time recalling the last time I was so uncomfortable in a church. And I was just really hoping for the whole thing to end and was pretty happy when Keith launched into his sermon. The passage was from Romans 8, 18-30, and the message was entitled, What's Wrong With My World? The title was definitely intriguing, and I found myself perked up as he started to read the passage. This interest turned to amazement as the themes of the passage of Scripture started to fly out at me. The passage describes that both the physical world itself, as well as we human beings, are broken, frustrated, and groaning. That the world is not right, we are not right, and we are all waiting to be redeemed. If we are hoping things will be right, meaning perfect and unbroken in this world, we will be disappointed. As these things started to be explained, I started thinking about the events of the last few years. I realized that if we believe things like miscarriages won't occur, we will be disappointed. Right at this point, Keith said the thing that just completely leveled me. He said, isn't it interesting that the analogy Paul uses in this passage to illustrate our worldly and personal troubles is the pain of childbirth? It was actually the guiding theme in the entire passage. At this point, my entire body froze, and I just felt like I couldn't breathe or move. Huge tears started pouring down my face one after the other. I knew that those words in this passage were my divine appointment for this trip. God absolutely was not going to allow me to walk away from my time in Moab without connecting with Him. For the first time in a year, I actually believed and knew God loved me. Knowing where I was at, God stepped in and graced me with a gift of faith. And my prayers were answered. My prayers of understanding why all this had happened. It happened because this world, our bodies, indeed our fragile psyches are not bulletproof in this life. Stuff happens and it is often painful, but we are not hopeless. The comfort of a spirit-filled life enabling us to manage this pain and the promise of the rightness of the age to come is our great hope. The healing of this pilgrimage allowed me to move on and accept and deal with the challenge of the miscarriages. My wife and I came to have peace with the whole episode and were very grateful for the blessings we had. And although there was no deal to be made, or he had to, God chose to bless us anyway, and later that year our daughter came to us. July 23, 2008, Palea Elizabeth Dunn was born. My wife did an internet search on miracles and names, and the Hebrew word Pele came up. Pele means amazing beyond description, awesome, and miraculous. Our God and my daughter Palea are certainly that to me. So our mission here at K2 is to invite and equip every one of you to live out the adventure of following God. Now, sometimes when we think about trouble, it's actually one of the biggest reasons that people don't believe that there is a God. But I just, I just want to ask you, <clears throat> believing that there isn't a God does not take away the trouble. <laughs> We're all going to have trouble. And we either can live it apart from him and try to figure it out on our own with our own strength, which is so many times devastatingly heavy, or we actually can go through the trouble with a God who's greater, who's in it, who works through it for good. So I just want to take this next moment to now just real quickly equip you, okay, to equip you 
in how to actually live out this adventure of God when there's trouble. What to do when you're in trouble. Just number really quick, four things. And write, these, write these down, either for yourself or for your, for your friends. Number one, when you're in trouble, tell God the truth. Tell him the truth. David says, I cry out to God most high. I have found that one of the most important things I can do for my soul when the trouble's happening is be as honest as possible with God. You don't have to have your act together. By the way, if you don't have your act together, he knows that. You're not fooling him. Don't try to suck it up and be a really strong Christian. It's like, no, the truth is God. Here, I got to cry out to you and I need you to tell you the truth about my heart, about my soul. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm afraid. I'm doubting who you are. You got to tell God the truth. And the Psalms are so helpful because David has no problem doing that. Number two, then you have to tell yourself the truth. Now tell yourself the truth. Look what David says in verse eight. He says, awake my soul. Did you know that we can actually talk to ourselves? We can. It's actually an important gift that God has given us. Look at Psalm 42, five. The psalmist says, why my soul are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. That's a fascinating passage. He's talking to his soul. It's a gift God has given you. You can be disturbed in here. You can be afraid in here. You can doubt things in here. And yet you can tell yourself the truth. Expect the trouble, Dave. Expect God to be in it. Expect him to be greater. Expect him to make good out of this. Expect it to end. You can tell yourself that. Number three, find someone to tell you the truth. I want to tell you, I'll just be totally honest with you, when I'm in my darkest places, I know this stuff, but I just gotta be honest with you. I'm not very good at telling myself. Sometimes it's just too dark in here and I need someone else to tell me. And the craziest thing is, when somebody else tells me the truth, something happens. It works. It, it, it has effect. So look at this. In 1 Samuel 23, it says, When David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. And then he told him the truth. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. See, this is David who's like, I need help here. I'm freaking out. I'm telling my soul not to be disturbed. But what he needed, he needed someone else to come and help you find strength. If you're struggling right now in your darkness with God, find someone to tell you the truth. And here's the last one. Declare the truth. And then you gotta declare the truth you got to sing it out. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to declare the truth. Our, our connections team is going to come together, and we're going to declare the truth together to end our service through communion. Okay? We're going to take communion to remind us. This is what Jesus said. He goes, you guys need to do this on a regular basis so that you can declare together. We've gathered together. Let's encourage each other about the truth. Now, in Psalm 57... 
Here's what David said. He goes, my heart is steadfast. Oh, by the way, when you, they're going to go ahead and start passing this out immediately. Just take, if you're a follower of Christ, take the bread and then take the juice and just hold it, okay? Just hold it. Don't, don't take it immediately. We're going to take it together, all right? If you made a decision for Christ, go ahead and receive this and then hold on to this, okay? Now, here's what David says in Psalm 57. Look at this. He goes, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Guys, now remember this. He's in the cave. He's in a cave. He's in complete darkness. And, and Saul is around him with his armed forces. And he says, I will sing and I'm going to make melody. And that's when he says, awake my soul. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give faith. He's in the cave. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Guys, now catch this. How in the world could you be in that place of darkness and be able to say, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. Twice he says it. You know why? Because God's love is steadfast. See, David had a faith that required faith. Somehow in the midst of this, he knew that God's love was steadfast. It's as great as it is to the heavens. It's so far beyond God's love is. And so how can you and I know right now in the midst of your trouble that God's steadfast love for you is higher than the heavens, bigger and greater than the trouble. How can you know that? You're holding it in your hands. Jesus said, I want you to know one thing. I love you. And I want to be with you through every valley of the shadow of death that you're going to go through on this planet. I share this with you, Jesus says, so that my peace can be in you. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But I've taken, overtaken the world. So what is this body? You're going to take this bread. Thanks, Garrett. So Jesus said, on a regular basis, you need to take this because you've got to remember this. I gave my life for you. But I don't feel like God loves me. He loves you. He died for you so he could be with you through everything that you would go through on this planet. He wants you to have eternal life now and forever. That means now in your struggles. And so you can go, but I just don't know if he loves me. This is it. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ would lay down his life for you. So you hold this and then eventually in a minute we're going to take it and it's going to go inside you and you're going to be able to remember with me in my struggle and in my trouble. And then he said, because some of us right now, how can you know he's with me? Because you, you struggle and you go, I just, I've made so many mistakes. I've done so many bad things. There's no way that God could give me. And so Jesus is like, okay, then we're going to do this right here. Because I shed my blood to forgive you of all of your sins so that you could be reconciled back to God. Nothing can separate you from my love. 
you are completely forgiven of all of your sin. And if you've been buying the lie that God's not with you because you're a bad person, if you have received Christ, then he took all of your sin into his body and he gave you all of his righteousness. I will tell you, if you haven't received Christ, then yes, then you haven't received that forgiveness and you're still separate from God. Now he loves you and he wants to be with you so bad. And all you gotta do is put your faith in him and receive him and say, I'm putting you in me because I need you, God. I need you, Jesus. Please forgive me. Please forgive me of all of my sin and come in and be the Lord of my life. Yes, communion matters. It matters for everything. And today it matters to remind you that in your trouble, God is with you. He's with you and he loves you, okay? So he took his body, he took the piece of bread, he broke it, and then he looked at his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. I give you my very life, okay? Let's take and eat in remembrance of Christ. separate you from his love. Only sin. Sin's the only thing that can separate you. But Jesus' blood has taken care of all your sin. So you can know he's with me. He sees you with no blemish. He sees you with no accusation because of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Alright? So, let's take the blood. Let's take the cup and drink in remembrance of his sacrifice on our behalf. God, we just give you praise and we give you thanks for loving us. Specifically right now, we just thank you for Jesus who came to save us from our sin so that we could be reconciled back to you so that you could dwell within us. And so now we can know that there's gonna be trouble, but we can know you are in this trouble with us because you're in us. So we give you praise and thanks. And Jesus, you rose from the dead. That body that was broken on the cross, that body rose from the dead. You have defeated every power that's greater than us. And now the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is inside you. And you can know that he's greater than any trouble that you're going through. And now we give you praise and thanks that you create good out of this. God, would you just speak that right now to every person in this room? I'm going to work in this trouble for your good according to my purpose. Lord, fulfill your purpose through the trouble in our life. And we give you praise and thanks that no matter how long we suffer on this earth, Someday, 
we will be with you and all trouble will be done. It will not last and we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.